Welcome to Teacher's Lounge. I'm Peter Medlin. If you didn't know, we're a podcast here at WNIJ where we tell the stories of education with the help of local educators. And this is normally the part of the intro where I would say that all the educators that you hear on this show are people suggested by the people that listen to this show, by our listeners. And that's that's still very true if you have someone in your life who you think deserves a spotlight or who we need to talk to. Definitely still email the show, uh, teacherslounge at niu.edu. But I also want to just say thank you to everyone who has listened to this show and even taken the time to send in their nominations or suggestions because this episode actually marks the one-year anniversary of, of me making this show. And when I say that it isn't possible without the people that listen, that's literally true because, like I said, everyone that we get to be on this show is thanks to you guys. And so thank you for helping us not only be able to make the show, but just get to explore and discover all of these cool perspectives and people that we've been able to have. All right, now enough of that. Let's just get into the show. This week, we have Dr. Laura Crowley. She's the chair of the English department at Northern Illinois University. Laura and I talked about how her department is making the transition online this fall, about her work teaching and learning about Shakespeare in England, and the thrill of discovering 500-year-old poems. It's disbelief, right, for a minute. There's no way, there's no way that no one else has talked about this. Of course, someone else has. But no, the more that I'm into it, the more that I realized that it just needed someone to start the conversation. Near the end, we also talk a little bit about her kids getting into Harry Potter during the pandemic for the first time. So if you'll indulge us as we geek out for a minute, that would be great. Um, shout out my fellow Ravenclaws. Uh, in the last episode, we talked a lot about school reopening plans. So, like, what's it going to look like for schools going back in person, or at least a mix of in person and online? Uh, well, big shocker, uh, the news has changed since then. I know, right? Crazy. Uh, and a lot of these schools, including DeKalb, who we talked to, are delaying their starts and beginning classes digitally. And uh, some of those who haven't switched their classes to online are seeing major pushback from their district's teachers. Teachers in Elmhurst are opposing their district's back-to-school plan. Max Schoenberg is the president of the Elmhurst Teachers Council. He says Elmhurst's plan would bring hundreds of students back into its buildings. It'll be even more difficult to police social distancing and face coverings with younger students. He says it'll be hard for educators to go against their instincts and break up elementary students trying to work together. They reopen right now in person. What's joyful about school is something that will probably not be safe. And he says teachers are still seeking answers about both in-person safety and what online instruction will actually look like. And with Illinois seeing a resurgence of COVID-19 cases and rising positivity rates, Schoenberg is concerned disruptive quarantines could be inevitable. Suburban districts near Elmhurst, like East and West Aurora and districts in Naperville, have delayed their in-person starts. And next up, we've got a longer story than normal, but it's definitely worth the listen. Uh, so back in May, the Education Department, led by Betsy DeVos, made sweeping changes to Title IX regulations. And colleges and universities are still coming to terms with the new policies that many advocates and school officials say will chill reporting of sexual assaults and harassment. The new regulations change the definition of what qualifies as sexual harassment under Title IX. To meet the new standard, harassment must be, quote, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. Shiwali Patel is the Director of Justice for Student Survivors at the National Women's Law Center. So these rules kind of in total really just turn Title IX on its head as a civil rights law. She says they raise the threshold of what schools can choose to ignore. 
and it's a departure from guidance that's been in place for around 20 years. If a student isn't being outright denied equal access to a program or activity, that might not be enough. So that means some students would be forced to endure repeated and escalating levels of abuse before they can get help. The new rules also require institutions of higher learning to dismiss reports of harassment that happen off campus. Now they'd have to put together a separate sexual misconduct policy to apply to those situations. This has ramifications for online harassment too, especially as many schools move to more virtual instruction during the pandemic. Faith Ferber is a student engagement organizer with Know Your Nine. She says if someone's harassing you in a class Zoom meeting, that would be covered. But if someone is sexually harassing you over Facebook and then you have to see them in the Zoom classroom, that wouldn't necessarily be covered. At Northern Illinois University, Title IX coordinator Sarah Garner says they do have procedures to help students. We have the opportunity to see, okay, even though it doesn't reach this level of conduct, how are we still going to address it as a university? But as Faith Ferber says, the problem is that places like NIU could ignore those cases if they choose to. And she says the education department isn't there to protect students either. We can't count on our schools and we can't count on the government. So all we can count on is students and student power to really make a difference and hold our schools accountable. At NIU, students held protests last year on the basis that the university was mishandling investigations and that the process was slow and apathetic. The university hired another coordinator and Garner says they're much better equipped to handle their caseload now. Ferber works with students to put pressure on their universities when rights are being violated. Know Your Nine has been online organizing to raise awareness about the new changes. The new regulations are over 2,000 pages, 2,033 to be exact, and the policies themselves fit into the last 30 pages or so. The reason the document is so long is so that the Department of Education, headed by Betsy DeVos, is trying to justify why the changes are needed and respond to public comments. Shiwali Patel says there were more than 100,000 comments mostly opposing the new rules. There were school principals, there were mental health experts, over 900 trauma specialists joined a letter and raised concern about the rule. So there was significant opposition and yet they, they continued to move forward. Sarah Garner and NIU were one of the many schools that sent in comments. Unfortunately, not many of our concerns made it into the final regulation. Patel says the provisions were largely unchanged from what was proposed, but there were also a few changes that weren't even in the proposed rule, so they didn't have a chance to comment. One example is that colleges and universities are now barred from dealing with complaints by people who aren't actively participating in an education program. That means a school won't be allowed to investigate a complaint of sexual harassment if the survivor already graduated or they transferred or let's say they dropped out of school because they were sexually assaulted and they don't plan to re-enroll. And colleges could dismiss cases when the respondent who's being accused isn't enrolled or employed by the school. Patel says that could include professor who retires or who resigns after abuse comes to light. Another change that wasn't included originally reiterates that the department's guidelines supersede any state law. And some of the new Title IX changes are in conflict with Illinois state law. One forces those going through an investigation to undergo cross-examination in a live hearing. And as Sarah Gardner at NIU says, We have a state law that says you cannot cross-examine one another. This is the Illinois Preventing Sexual Violence and Higher Education Act. However, now the federal regulations say you must cross-examine each other. In NIU's public comment, it stated that this could, quote, turn educational centers into courts of law and allow for parties to be subjected to, quote, demeaning, inappropriate, and irrelevant probing. They're waiting for the Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul to weigh in. He, along with 17 other attorneys general, is suing the Education Department to block the final rules from going into effect. Garner says they'll find out if they have to proceed with the guidance on August 14th. 
There are countless other issues advocates say make the process more difficult for the people involved and for the school conducting the investigation. Patel says there's now a broad exclusion of hearsay evidence. That includes disregarding evidence from someone who refuses to testify at a live hearing. If an assailant admits what they did in a guilty plea in a separate process outside the school before a judge, or maybe they admit what they did in a text message or an email to the complainant or a witness, if that respondent isn't going to be cross-examined, the school has to ignore that confession. Sarah Garner says where previously an investigator familiar with the case would make a final determination, that's no longer allowed. It can't be a Title IX coordinator either. That decision needs to be made by someone who has not been involved in the investigation that is very neutral. But wouldn't you want someone familiar with the case to make a decision like that? Garner says... One would argue, right? If the rules are upheld, many advocates are concerned that COVID-19 could exacerbate problems. Faith Ferber at Know Your Nine says that the more schools lose money, the more likely it is they'll make cuts to Title IX and victim rights offices. We're hearing from so many students that their schools have ghosted them and have just stopped responding because they don't know what they're doing. Ferber and other Title IX advocates say they know how long and arduous a process it can be for those who experience sexual harassment or violence to get justice. And Ferber says these new rules make it feel like the education department just doesn't care. Let's get right into my conversation with Lara. We had a little bit of technical trouble with the recording, so a word might be cut off here or there, but it's a pandemic. We're all doing the best we can. Anyway, here is my delightful chat with Dr. Lara Crowley. How is it with both of you guys, uh, I assume, working at home at the same time? Are you guys in the same room a lot? Do you guys separate? What does that look like? Uh, We have a son who just turned six and a daughter who just turned 10. Uh, So it's more like trading out. I usually get up really early and start working and work until after lunch. And then we tag out because he's trying to finish a book. So that's what our summer's been like, which has been really nice. Um, You know, we don't get as much time together (laughs) as we would really like. It's been going well. So this is our shared desk in our bedroom. We just tag out. You guys both study early English poetry? Is that what you said? Uh, Poetry, drama, prose, but yeah, we both study the same period. We met in graduate school. I was going to say, that's adorable. That's so specific. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and we were very lucky. We met at the graduate student intro to the department barbecue when we both started. So we started dating a few months later and then got married about a year later. And we were just really, really fortunate. We were studying things. We were working on early modern British literature. So we knew that it would be pretty difficult (laughs) to find jobs together. It's so hard to find a tenure track job generally, but two people working in the same field, trying to find them at the same place. I mean, that's kind of the dream. And we just got incredibly lucky. And we're just really fortunate that in these totally separate searches, we we ended up getting the offers. So we were both able to come and we loved it. Love NIU. That's unbelievable. Like how many people were in, even in your master's degree program, were there a lot of people? Like I imagine that like that specific kind of, of literature wouldn't be huge, huge classes, right? Oh, uh, no, no. I did my master's at North Carolina State. And there were two of us studying early modern British and we had some really wonderful faculty mentors there. Uh, it was a, a great place for that study. But I, one of the reasons I was in Maryland is that there was just such a great faculty and they're you know, partly because the university is great, but partly because the Folger Shakespeare Library is right there. 
so many people come to do research at the Folger. And I wanted to be able to do that too, for sure. It was an unusually large of early modern graduate students, I think for those reasons. Um, and we just really helped each other and supported each other. And you know, Tim and I got to know each other during the process and that was very lucky. And Shakespeare is something that you guys both teach, you said, right? That's right, yes. Yeah. So we, we both teach the Shakespeare classes. Uh, he's been teaching a little bit more than I have been recently because of the administrative roles that I've taken in the last couple of years. Um, but yes, and he just got to teach past summer uh, in Oxford because Tim and I both taught in NIU's study abroad program in Oxford. And he taught a Shakespeare course uh, for faculty from NIU go to Oxford through this program every year and teach NIU students. It's uh, you know, about five weeks over a summer. And we just had a wonderful time. Our kids went with us. We had such a great time. Great students, full field trips, um, just a blast. I had to imagine that's like the ideal vacation for you. <laughs> you guys, right? That's awesome. It is. Yes, it really is. Have you been to England? Have you had that I, chance? I have not. In fact, I have been thinking about it so much during quarantine that like when this is, you know, like how everyone is like, when this is over, I'm really going to freeze down. And like one right. of my big things has been like, I need to take some kind of European vacation because I've traveled a lot throughout the U.S., but I, I haven't been to Europe. And so it's something I don't want oh, okay. to do. Well, that's great. And that'll be a, an exciting thing to look forward to now that you know that you have the goal for when this crazy period ends. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. And have you, with Shakespeare, did you do any acting with it too? Yeah, so actually I did some acting when I was in middle school and high school, some school acting and community theater and really loved it. And then a couple of years ago, like my daughter, she got really excited about acting. So she started doing some theater when she was seven and I would help her with her lines and we were having a wonderful time. You know, to a certain extent being in the classroom, there's a performance, at least some people teach with that sort of style and I suppose that I'm one of them. And so it seemed like a, a natural transition working on these things with her. And Lummer, we both just had such a blast going to, to plays, going to musicals. We went to see Matilda the musical for her birthday. And so when we got back, um, she decided she wanted to try out for not just a children's theater play, but one that included children and adults. So she tried out for um, Miracle on 34th Street at the Albright Theater in Batavia. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this with you. And I tried out and we, we got cast. It was a fantastic cast and crew. The director was just wonderful. And we had a blast. It was the first time I had been on a stage since I was 16. And I did not expect to get cast in that main role. So then we tried out for first musical since I was a kid. And we were cast in that as well. Um, we were supposed to just weeks ago uh, in Matilda musical in DeKalb uh, at Stagecoach. Um, she got cast as Matilda and I got asked probably typecast I guess librarian. Uh, I was really excited about it. We both were. We were so excited. Just wonderful people to work with but of course with COVID it didn't happen but we feel very fortunate that it's been postponed. So next summer we hope that we'll be able to be back on the stage together. That's awesome. Has your daughter been, has she been really into Hamilton? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thank you, Disney Plus. <laughs> I, um, we've had a really good time watching that, and she's gotten 
very excited about it. And it's really wonderful to have that as a means to start conversations about diversity. I mean, certainly there's been so much happening in our world, um, in our country this summer, in our world this summer, um, to finally get some conversation needed to be happening in a much bigger way for a long time. And so it's been great to have some opportunities to talk with her and my son about things in Hamilton. Yeah. It's just one way of helping with that. Yeah, and for me, I was really never into musicals. Like there really wasn't anything that I had, that I had gotten into. And Hamilton was kind of the first one that really, probably because of, of someone that loves history and hip hop, I feel like it was just a perfect intersection of those two things. That's but I kind of opened the door, I feel like, into exploring other things within musicals too. It's just kind of be a gateway. And it kind of reminded me, we, we were talking about Shakespeare that, I, you know, I'm sure I've mentioned this on this show before. When I was in college, I got to do like one semester of, of Shakespeare acting. Oh, that's great. And I had like really never even connected with, like I had read a little Shakespeare in high school and, and not even like you, you were talking about, about how there's performance based. It was very much like read silently Romeo and Juliet at your desk, which is just like oh. very, very odd to do when you're 14. <laughs> yes, and, and not a great introduction to something that was meant to be performed from exactly. the beginning. And, and so I got to do a couple scenes from Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. I got to be Horatio and I got to be the friar. Oh, wow. Oh, and, those are uh, great. And so as oh. the friar, I got, to, I got to give some really long, you know, monologues too. And that was right. not only the first time I got to do any acting, which I really love doing and I'd love to do more, but it was also the first time I really connected with Shakespeare in that way too. That's wonderful. I mean, I um, I never thought that I would try that again. I just gave it a shot uh, because of my daughter, and then it just reminded me of this thing that I loved. I feel like connected with a part of myself that had just been sort of quiet since I was sixteen. Um, and you know, whatever it is you're performing, it, it'd be really special thing to realize that it's never too late to give it a shot again, to, you know, just go up there and have some fun with it. So, yeah, that's, that's so you should think about it too. Hey, I why should, not? I really should. I can add that also to my post COVID to-do list. I get that active in that one too. That'll be along with my, my European exploits. That'll be great. <laughs> there you go. Why not? <laughs> You got to go to Europe for your dissertation too, right? Was it the same thing that you were talking, or uh, John Dunn, right? Yes, um, I went to England for a study abroad experience when mm -hmm. I was in college. Yeah. And at that point, I absolutely sure I was going to be an orthodontist. I had decided that that was the plan when I was 12 years old. You know, I just stuck with it, even though I really, really loved my English classes so much. And being an orthodontist is a wonderful thing. And I did all of these summer internships and where what I was planning to do. And then I got to England for that study abroad. And I took a Shakespeare course and I went to the theater to Stratford and I took a British history course. Very romantic. Yeah. Uh, it... It, it really, I know it sounds completely cheesy. It really didn't change my life. It just made me stop and really think about um, what my passions were and what I wanted to be doing. Because of course, as you know, when you have a job, you're doing it five days a week, many hours of your life. And so um, I got back home and started really thinking, am I sure being an orthodontist is what I want all of those hours of my life to, to be? Um, 
And so I stuck with it and through my senior school and finally admitted to myself, yes, this, this isn't really the right path for me. Um, at, at 12, and, you had decided orthodontist? That was, why at 12 was that the thing that you gravitated towards? Um, actually, my, my mom had passed away not long before, and she had had problems with TMJ a few years before that, and it was giving her headaches, and then she got braces. And it was almost like she magically got better. And so I think that, you know, with her having passed away recently and I had just moved to a new town because of that, I was searching for something to cling on to, something that made sense to me that I could, you know, get some drive in. Yeah. And so that made sense. Um, but at the time, those weren't the classes that really reached me and that made me feel passionate. And so, um, yeah, when I switched gears and decided to pursue the graduate school in English, just, it was really wonderful how supportive my family and my friends were, especially my dad. He was just wonderful and super surprised <laughs> because I had been that, that driven young orthodontist uh, wannabe for so long, but they were so supportive. And then I got to um, University of Maryland on the PhD um, at NC State and at Maryland, I had just had wonderful, wonderful mentors. And one, think about trying to go to England to finish up my dissertation work there, because I had been doing a lot of work in archives on John Donne. I was really interested in people who were collecting his work uh, in handwritten copies, you know, in manuscripts well before it was published, because he was right at the same time as Shakespeare. Uh, but he was much more popular than Shakespeare in terms of people collecting his works and manuscript. He had written these body poems, politically dangerous poems, and people were very interested in those things, no surprise. And so they were collecting a lot of his work. He was also a pastor too, right? Yes, yes. He was a, a really prominent pastor, a really prominent preacher. And so we're very interested in collecting all of this poetry. So we still have so many copies out there in archives in the United States and England. And I had done a lot of work in the United States looking at copies here, but I wanted to do more in England. So I was very fortunate to receive a fellowship to work there for a year in London during my dissertation writing. I had a wonderful mentor there, Peter Beale. Uh, Tim, my husband, made it so that we could go there together and just have this sort of surreal year abroad early in our marriage. And we've gotten back there as often as we could since then. I had never really read much of his poetry before and I got your email talking about it. And so I, I took a couple of minutes and I, and I read a few and I was reading a little biography part of it. And one thing I thought was really fascinating was that, you know, you, you mentioned that he was, you know, more popular, more popular at the time than, you know, Shakespeare when they were writing it. But one of the things that struck me was the whole, you know, that his work kind of just went out of favor and just kind of got lost for a couple centuries, right? Before it got rediscovered, like what, in like the 1900s or something like that? I think that we've realized that didn't happen as much as some scholars had said for a while, but yeah, yeah, to yeah. an extent. But just like the idea of, of something being so popular and like being so resonant and then yeah. disappearing for centuries for people to find it later. I guess the thing that I was thinking of was like, is that going to happen less and less now? Like, have we discovered a lot of old, like, are we still going to have things where, you know, in 2020, we can discover some kind of piece of art or literature that we thought was lost for so long? Like, is that still a thing that happens a lot? And maybe even someone that has more knowledge about that than me, as someone that's read, you know, two articles. <laughs> oh, no, no. In fact, I, I had one of those 
big discovery moments that was really exciting um, while I was living in England for that year, working on my dimension. I was flipping through a manuscript collection that people had used many times. They had gone through many times. But when they had gone through it, it seems that they were usually looking for whichever poet they were editing time. You know, were they editing Dunn? Okay, well, they're looking through for manuscript copies of Dunn's works so that they compare, compare those with others or, you know, other poets of the period. Um, and I was just trying to look at the whole thing. What are the other pieces that are in there that maybe no one's ever published because they don't belong to specific writers? And I found this poem in there that was identified as a letter to Elizabeth from the Earl of Southampton. And it was just a copy of a verse, um, a verse letter. And I was reading, and it said that it was written by the Tower. And I thought, wait a second, the Earl of Southampton, he is the person who Shakespeare actually dedicated his two narrative poems to. The possibility he was a patron to Shakespeare, if he was even the young man of the sonnets who Shakespeare talks about. I mean, he was a very important historical figure. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I don't remember anybody ever saying he was a poet. Was he a poet? Do other people about this poem? Is this just well known and I not to know about it? And I started looking around trying to find information and no one had ever talked about this poem, and no one had talked about Southampton as a poet. And so I started trying to do research to think, is there any possibility that, and based on all of the research that I did at the time, I became quite, it could have been. There were a lot of connections between the poem and letters he was writing at the time. I feel pretty confident, I can't be 100% sure, but I feel pretty confident that he actually wrote this poem. And so I was able to put out an article and explain everything that I had learned, but also just ask other scholars to start looking. And so it was really exciting to be able to put something out there um, that other scholars can then run with in the future as we try to find out more about him and their relationship and sort of when he was in the tower because of being associated with the rebellion against Queen Elizabeth at that time. So it was, it, it was a really exciting moment. It's so much fun to talk to students about these possibilities. I mean, I was still a graduate student then. There's just so much out there still waiting to be discovered. And I love being able to encourage students to go out and learn about these kinds of things and try to do this sort of work for themselves. I love that because, it, you know, in some ways it feels like discovery is is easier than ever because we can just you know we have the internet and so like doing that kind of mass research but like it all it makes it even more magical when you do have a discovery that like if you you search for it you know you google you go through all these resources and there's nothing there and you're like oh man it's disbelief right for a minute there's no way there's no way that no one else has talked about this of course someone else has but no more than into it the more that i realized that it just needed someone to start the conversation that's just a good reminder for everyone, right? That there's still thing, even though it's 2020 and we think we're all jaded and we have the internet for everything, that like there's still things that we can find that no one's ever found before. Absolutely. And uh, I think students get really excited when they realize that, that there really are major opportunities for genuine contributions. Do you guys know is the English department specifically, are you guys going to be mostly online for the fall? What does that look like? The English department's going to be 100% online. I think that the goal of the 80% of the people who would have been on campus, um, off campus, have roughly 20% of those who were going to be on campus. Um, and so that meant a number of courses going online. And 
we wanted to find a way to help out with that. And I feel really good about that for our students and for our faculty. It was very new for us. Uh, some English departments at other universities have taught a number of classes online for years and even have whole programs that are online. Um, but that's not something that we had really been working on previously. And so we only had a couple of people in our department who had taught online at all. It was a big challenge in the spring, but it was also a challenge as we were thinking about how to move forward for fall. So many of us participated in this wonderful academy that the Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning held over the summer um, at NIU, um, online, of course. Yeah. I, I I feel like we went really quickly from going back to school and like, you know, fall, all that's going to happen. You know, when we will deal with that, when we get to it, it was this like far off period that we were thinking about to like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's this month. Like, oh, it's happening right now. I believe it. I, I've been in so many meetings and conversations for the last couple of months. It doesn't feel that way to me at all, but I completely understand um, how from the outside it, it definitely would. I mean, it feels like that for us, for our children, even though I know that people have been having these same kinds of conversations for months about that. I think it's um, just our I mean, perception of time is completely yes. by everything. So, you know, if something was in April, I have no idea if that was even a long time ago at this point. I completely understand. March feels like it was five years ago. <laughs> it really, really does. It's funny, you know, this was my first year as department chair. So as of August 1st, I was in my, I've been moving into my second year, right? And I remember um, during our spring break, the first day of our spring break in March, having this sort of moment of, okay, so this first year has presented some challenges, um, but I feel so lucky to work with such wonderful people. I feel like we've worked well together. We've collaborated so that we could do really good things together or at least get some things started that we care about. Uh, this is going to be okay. First, it's gone all right. And <laughs> by the end of the week, everything was just turned upside down. It's funny you were mentioning your, all those uh, professional development that you guys were trying to take over the summer. I think that's a question that we've all been thinking too is like, in the spring, everything happens so suddenly, and we're all just trying to figure it out in the moment and scramble and be like, okay. And now we've had a little bit more time to think about, like, if we're going to be online, what's the most effective way to do it? Like, have there been, with those innovation classes, what is something that has stood out to you in terms of, like, creative ways to do things online that we wouldn't have thought about before? One thing that's been really useful for me is thinking through the possibilities for async learning. Um, because when everything started in March, uh, basically we wanted to just move all of the classes online, but keep them synchronous sessions. So courses where you're meeting with the students live. We wanted to keep things, if you met on Tuesday, Thursday, 11 to 12.15, you're meeting Tuesday, Thursday, 11 to 12.15, you're just doing you know, online. That summer we learned about internet and the major benefits. Um, and of course, it can really be important for faculty and for students who can't sit down Tuesday, Thursday, 11 to 12, 15, because they're caring for a child um, who can't be in the 
spectrum. Um, or maybe they just don't have the same technology opportunities. They don't have the Wi-Fi at home. Uh, and so it's not easy for them to sit there and, and do a, a Zoom session or a, you know, collaborate or Microsoft Teams session. So there are so many reasons to consider asynchronous learning also. Yeah, and you didn't get to teach your first year and you're not going to be teaching any classes in the fall too, right? Right. I'll be back in the classroom in the spring and I'm really, really looking forward to that. Well, um, whether it's the virtual classroom or the in-person classroom, we'll see. I guess that remains to be seen. And I'm looking forward to teaching again. While being a parent during all this has been really, really complicated. Uh, certain things just end up slipping through the cracks. Like uh, our house has never been as messy. And I just have to let that go. You know, there have to be um, ways to say you got to keep the priorities uh, where they need to be. I'm fortunate that um, I've been able to work with a pretty great partner and my husband and us making this happen. Yeah, so we can't all, you know, learn three new languages and keep everything <laughs> as clean as possible as much as we'd like to, you know. That's, that sounds pretty great. Are you working right now? I, I, I am not, I'm not learning any languages right now, unfortunately. I, I wish I were. I wish, I wish that were a humble brag on my part, but it is not. <laughs> my husband's actually been trying to teach our kids Spanish, so our kids have been working on a language, which is well, a lot of fun to see. I'll phrase it this way. I, I have been learning to play the piano, so that is, it's kind of. That's a, wonderful. Kind of, kind of a language, I suppose, music, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I'd like to think that my downstairs neighbors probably appreciate it. That's great. Uh, I'm That's sure, great. They, I'm sure they, that they're enjoying the concerts. Exactly. They can be serenaded when I'm trying to play Ed Sheeran on my on my piano. There you go. <laughs> Have you uh, watched or because I know that everyone's been like exhausting all of the streaming platforms that we have at our disposal you know, just trying to figure out something to watch. Has there been anything that you've watched or read recently that has really stuck out to you? Well, my kids have discovered Harry Potter this summer. Oh. So we have had multiple Harry Potter marathons, both reading and movie viewing. And we just got a new pup and um, I, the kids named the puppy. And so my daughter, who loves Shakespeare, named the, uh, the puppy Benedict to do about thing. My son got to do the middle name and he uh, chose Lovegood from Luna Lovegood, uh, who's his favorite character in Harry Potter. And oh. that puppy has brought so much joy <laughs> to all of us, all of us, just in the last few weeks since he joined our family. So that's a lot of fun. The quarantine puppy is it's awesome. That's, <laughs> and I will say, Luna Lovegood, a, a great favorite Harry Potter character. I think. So that, you're a big Harry Potter too. I do. I think that if I had to say for your favorite character, I think I'm a big uh, Remus Lupin. Is is one that I would. I, oh. that, that would be like my cool answer, you know. And if I'm not going to say like a super main one. Remus was my original suggestion. That was my suggestion. I love him. He's right? a wonderful character. Yes, yes, a really so, great character. Do your kids already have takes on uh, the books versus the movies? Uh, it's been fun getting them to talk through differences. Um, and my daughter's on the, the fifth one now. Actually, no, they're both on the fifth one now. And so there were a lot of they realized were much better about the fourth book than the, the fourth movie. So yes. that, that led yeah. to a lot of good conversations. You know, what's outstanding is I recently, like a year or two ago, convinced my older brother to read them for the first time. So I got oh. to watch him experience it for the first time, but like in his late 20s. Oh, and, that's great. And like get super invested in it. I got to like <laughs> watch him 
get really excited about, you know, everything going on and then get blindsided by the ending of the fourth book. And, and oh, yes. it, it, it was so satisfying to watch like a, a grown adult be completely emotionally wrecked by this. <laughs> some of the moments, some of the themes, um, there are some really powerful things. Children's books um, really do have great power. And when you go back to them as adults, you see things that you never would have seen before. I will say it's fun too, because I have uh, so I'm one of four boys and we're all within five, four of us within five years. Oh, your mother. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I get, I barely can get by with two. So impressed. <laughs> just hearing She's, a saint. That. She's a saint and a teacher too. That's a, uh, wow. Um, wow. And, uh, but each of us have a different house. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So, so have, what's yours? Your house? Uh, Ravenclaw. Me too. We can give a, a <laughs> high five. My great pride in the fact that it happened to be that none of us were placed into Slytherin when we all took the little online quiz. Um, but, but, you know, there are really great things about That's Slytherin. right. Hashtag not all Slytherins. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, Laura. Well, that was, right, that was Laura, pretty much everything that I wanted to talk about. Again, thanks a ton for, for taking a minute and having a conversation. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to talk to you. This was a lot of fun. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. This is how we get cool people like Laura. This is how we get literally every guest, so we need your help. And wherever you're hearing this, subscribe, leave us a rating, share us. And, you know, why should you do that? Well, it would be nice and I would appreciate it. But also, it spreads the word, it gets more listeners, so we get more opportunities for more guests, more diverse perspectives, all that. Thanks, of course, to Lara for being on this week's show. And a big thanks to the Rockford band, Kind Ofs. You've heard their music on this show for the entire year. Big thanks to Spencer Tritt, who designed our Teacher's Lounge logo way back when. I have been your host, Peter Medlin. Thanks for a full year at Teacher's Lounge. I'll be back for year two very soon. See ya.